Would you open God's precious holy word? We will begin in 2 Kings 18, and then we'll spend the rest of the time in 2 Chronicles 29. Hezekiah. The evaluation of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. So let's look at 2 Kings first. And it was in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, like all that his father did, like all that his father David had done. Let's stop right there just a second. The greatest lesson for national blessing and prosperity, greatest lessons is more than one, found in Kings and Chronicles. We've seen it. A king is evil, bad things happen. A king is good, good things happen. Hezekiah is following Ahaz. He's following an evil king. The king was so evil that he had closed and locked the doors to the temple in Jerusalem. You may remember that, reading that. So nobody could worship. There was no emphasis on uh, God, which was extraordinary for a son of David especially. So this is the, this is the national attitude that Hezekiah inherits. And we've already seen how the, the Baal worship has invaded the southern kingdom of Judah from the, from the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, with that said, let's keep going here. Hezekiah abolished the high places. He smashed the monuments, cut down the Asherah, crushed the copper serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel were burning incense to it. They were worshiping it like a god. And he called it Nechishtan. He trusted in the God of Israel. Uh, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah who were after him, nor were there before him. He cleaved to Yahweh. He did not turn away from following him. He kept his commandments, which he had commanded Moses. Now, Yahweh was with him. In everything he ventured, he succeeded. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He slew the Philistines up to Gaza. <laughs> what about that? The Palestinians in Gaza and its boundaries from watchtower to fortified city. See, that's been a problem for a long time, hasn't it? And it will be until Jesus comes. So now, we've, we've, this was a generality. This was a general summary. But it gets more detailed now as we go over to 2 Chronicles. In chapter, it's supposed to be 29. That's not 28, it's 29. Some, somebody, somebody typed the wrong number in there. Hezekiah became king at the age of 25 years. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. 
His mother's name is Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was proper in the eyes of Yahweh, as all that his father David had done. Now remember what was said about David. He was a man after God's heart. That means he was in pursuit of the heart of God. He wanted to know what God wanted, and that's what he wanted. He was in pursuit of it. He was pursuing the heart of God. Now, I want you to notice some things. You have a lot of things that uh, I've emphasized uh, through this passage. First of all, first section in verses 3 through 19, Hezekiah cleanses the temple. Okay, so let's uh, notice here in the first year of the first month. In other words, as soon as his feet hit the ground as king, first year of his reign in the first month of his reign, he opened the doors of the house of Yahweh and he reinforced them. So the first thing that he does is he honors the beautiful, privileged access that God's people had to God in the temple. It's unthinkable that some leader, especially in Judah, would have cut off the worship, would have closed and locked up the doors to the temple. But Ahaz did. Now Hezekiah is correcting all of that. Well, he has a mess. He has a temple that hasn't been attended to. He has a process of worship that's given in the law that has not been observed for quite some time. And so there's disarray everywhere and confusion. So what, so what does he do? He brought the priests and Levites and gathered them into the Eastern square. So he starts with the worship leaders. He starts with the ones who are going to lead them in a worship and the worship of Yahweh goes to them first. And he said he doesn't go to his commanders, his military commanders. He doesn't go to his secretary of, of finance or treasury or what. He goes to the people who will lead God's people in worship. That's where it starts. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. The rest of it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many missiles you have. It doesn't matter how strong your economy. None of that matters if God is rejected, which he had been for a while. And, and now he comes to a throne that has been diminished, a kingdom that's not what it once was, Hezekiah. As a matter of fact, they were paying money to the king of Assyria so that he wouldn't invade Judah like he had invaded Israel and dispersed them everywhere. We saw that last time. And we will briefly allude to it a couple of other times before we leave the subject of the northern kingdom completely. So he's not going to be a vassal to an unbelieving pagan king. He's going to strengthen, he's going to reestablish and then strengthen as a priority the worship of Yahweh. How do they do that in this economy, in this culture? Well, you start with the temple, which is where people understand that Yahweh had said this is where he would meet his people. And he has to have his priests and Levites there 
involved, of course. <clears throat> and he said to them, <clears throat> and he said to them, hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of Yahweh, uh, the God of, the, the, your God of, of Israel, your God, Yahweh, your God, and remove, this is kind of an ugly word, the menstruant from the sanctuary. That's actually the, I have it in red over here. Uh, it it's, the menstruant is the, well, you know what that is. It's nasty. And this was a strong Hebrew word. And this is how Hezekiah viewed the condition of the temple. It was unclean. And he wants it cleansed. The things that are, uh, the, the things that are offensive and the things that aren't there that should be there and the things that are there that shouldn't be there. All of that puts it um, uh, like the woman in her time of the month is what he's referring to. She has to be separated from everybody for that time. And this is the way he sees. He says, this is, this is so unclean. We're, it's not ready for us. So he gives, the, he gives the order to the Levites. First of all, they have to sanctify themselves. Surely you committed to memory back when we were in Leviticus, how the priesthood cleansed themselves. Who wants to volunteer that information? <laughs> well, they had to sanctify themselves first before they could work in the temple. That's how it worked. Then sanctify the house of Yahweh, uh, your God, and uh, the God of your fathers, and remove the menstruant from the sanctuary. Very direct uh, instructions for our fathers acted treacherously and did evil in the eyes of Yahweh our God and forsook him they turned their faces away from the tabernacle of Yahweh and turned their backs I was listening to a man being interviewed earlier this today and he has written a book. I, I forgot the name of his book. That bald-headed guy that Turley was inter, inter, interviewing. Um, anyway, fa fairly popular book, among, especially among sociologists. And it's, he starts back in the 50s in the United States. And he, he sees it as the pinnacle of Christianity. And he has... Statistics from that era that were taken during that time as a, as a foundation for his, uh, his premise. In the 1950s, more than 50% of American families were in church every Sunday. You're supposed to faint when I say that. Well, you know, some of them, I was, I was there. Um, and, you know, which begs the rhetorical question, which has built in it the answer, was it a better time back then? People had a recognition of God. He was part of their lives. When I was in the second grade, I remember this. 
the first day of school, Miss Chestnut was her name, Miss Chestnut. First question, first day of school, stand up, give me your name. I want you to address, second grader, address the class, tell them who you are, what your daddy does, and where you go to church. Everybody, everybody in the class. Everybody had an answer. I know who I am, I know what my daddy does, and I know where I go to church. You sit down, the next kid stand up. Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall today if that was asked in public school of second graders? First of all, the teacher would be imprisoned, I guess, I don't know. But uh, how far we've been removed from a God-honoring society. Well, this is what had happened in Judah, you see. For a whole reign of a, of a king, they had been removed. They forsook Yahweh, turned their faces from the worship of Yahweh. They didn't care anything about him, turned their backs on him. They were all engrossed with this uh, Baal worship, Asherah, Asherah, all those gods and goddesses, the, 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 the fertility cult, all that awful behavior that went on with that. This just became part of life for them. It's the same kind of behavior that's being accepted today. It's the same demon. It's the same, it's the same behavior. It's just seen today, you know, as some sort of social activity or whatever, interrelationships or whatever. But it was worship to them back then. That's what made it acceptable in that day. Other political forces and things, I suppose, are at work to make such behavior acceptable today. Same thing, it's the same thing. You turn away from Yahweh. You forsake him. Don't have anything to do with worshiping Yahweh. Turn your back on his tabernacle. Then close the doors. Extinguish the lamps. And they did not burn incense nor offer up burnt offerings in the sanctuary to the God of Israel. So, so there was no acknowledgement of sin, for example. No offerings were made. The concept of sin had for that generation been removed from the psyche of the Jews of Judah, of the southern kingdom. They weren't acknowledging sin. They were living in it, enjoying it, not making the sacrifices, not having any kind of conviction on how to go and bring a sacrifice for a sin offering and, and acknowledge a sinful condition and a need to worship Yahweh. Whole culture had forsaken him. God bless Hezekiah. Somebody has to take the lead here. And who better than the son of David, the king? He understood his position by the power of God somehow in him and on him. He immediately, the first day of the first, the first month of the first year of his reign as king, he goes to work on the spiritual lives of the Jews in Judah. Because without a spiritual life, nothing else really matters. It's all gone. There's nothing else that matters. 
They closed the doors. They did all these bad things to the, to the temple. They just didn't think of sin. And the anger of Yahweh was against Judah and Jerusalem. He made them for a shudder, an astonishment, and a hissing, as you see with your own eyes. They were a shamed, diminished kingdom. They didn't have the same borders they used to have. They didn't have the economic prosperity they used to have. They didn't have the same military strength they used to have. And they were, the king had made Judah subservient to Assyria who cursed the God of heaven and who had destroyed the northern kingdom and had displaced their brethren, the other tribes. Nobody cared. So Yahweh was angry. And he says to those with whom he meets, especially the priesthood, the Levites, you and I both know that, this, that our, our fathers were evil. The generation before us, they were horrible. They were terrible. And now we have a generation that doesn't understand the need to worship Yahweh, the concept of sin, and how we have become literally beggars in the world, and we seem to be adjusted to it because we have forsaken Yahweh. And you see it with your own eyes. It's very evident. Behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity because of this. Being diminished, the God of this world working through the nations whom he controls, the pagan nations, took advantage of where, see, he was able to, apparently he thought he was shaming Yahweh, that Yahweh's people would be in such a horrible condition. Now it is with my heart to make a covenant with Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that his burning wrath should turn from us. My sons, now do not forget, for Yahweh chose you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and to burn incense. This was the purpose of Israel. And now at this late time in the history of God's people in the Old Testament, it falls to, the, to Judah. They're the ones left, they're the ones they are the nation, the chosen nation, for what purpose? To let the world know who he is. To stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and to burn incense. It wasn't just for the sake of Judah and Israel as a whole. It was for the sake of the world. This is how, this is how the world would learn about Yahweh. Salvation, sin, the commandments, and how to approach God having broken the commandments. This was, this was their purpose. This is what the temple is all about. Atonement, justification. God has chosen you. And now no longer shall we forget it.
Then there arose, okay? Hezekiah takes the lead. He starts with those who are supposed to be religious leaders. Many of them probably were greatly relieved to know that a king who was after God's heart had come to the throne. Bringing them together, he would say, it's your duty. You are the people of the temple. You are the people who offer the sacrifices. You are the people who keep the, the, the vestibule and you keep the accoutrement. You keep the things of the temple, the vessels and so forth. You are the people who do this. It's not ready for that. You're not ready for that. Sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the temple. And when that begins to happen, it begins to move other people. Power of God. Other people begin to be moved because Hezekiah took, he assumed the position of leadership starting with the spiritual lives of his people. So, and there arose the Levites, Mahat son of Amasai, Joel the son of Azariah, the sons of the Kethites, the sons of Merari, Kish the son of Abdi, and Azariah, the son of Jehalelel, and of the Gershonites, Joah, the son of Zimah, and Eden, the son of Joah, the sons of Elizaphan, Shimri, and Jael, and of the sons of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mataniah, the sons of Heman, Jehiel, and Shmei, and the sons of Jeduthun, Shemaiah, and Uziel. They assembled their brethren and they sanctified themselves. They came according to the commandment of the king concerning the matters of Yahweh to purify the house of Yahweh, the temple. Now look at this, the commandment of the king. It started there. The Bible teaches, if it teaches us anything about worldly living, it teaches us this, that God is keenly aware of national leadership, kings and kingdoms and leaders. And it gives us story after story of good leaders and bad leaders, of blessing upon that which is good and judgment upon that which is bad, time after time. And especially regarding God's people, how the other nations and kingdoms are raised up that they might serve as a rod of, of wrath, of anger, to punish God's people. And then God's done with them and somebody else comes along. See, it's, it's not their kingdom. The, the world is not their kingdom. It only belongs to God. And the only true leader of the kingdom of God is, of course, Messiah. The king of kings. And this is where the world is headed. It always has been. But still the story is written biblically, telling us of, of, about history and giving us the names and titles and so forth of leaders in the world because God knows. What a privilege and an opportunity for someone who aspires to national leadership to be there, to be an instrument for Yahweh. 
But it becomes a, a, a self-serving thing. The God of this world just seems to take over. And they all just seem to have the same process. And the, the grasp for power and, and elitism. And along the way, in the times of the Gentiles, along the way, Yahweh is rejected. Jesus is despised. Now, the priests came within the house of Yahweh to purify it. They took out all of the uncleanness that they found in the temple of Yahweh to the court of the house of Yahweh. And the Levites received it to take it out to the Kidron Valley outside. They commenced on the first of the first month to sanctify. On the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of Yahweh. They sanctified the house of Yahweh for eight days. On the 16th day of the first month, they finished. <coughs> so so they, they came with a conviction and a commitment. And they came within to King Hezekiah and they said, we have purified the entire house of Yahweh and the burnt offering altar and all of its vessels, the table of showbread, all of its vessels and all the vessels that King Ahaz forsook during his reign with his treachery. We have prepared and sanctified and here they are before the altar of Yahweh. So the first thing he does is he restores that which is vitally important to the worship of Yahweh because it all means something. It has a special and deep meaning in the worship of the God of Israel, of Yahweh. Okay, so now having done that, he restores worship in the temple. King Hezekiah rose early, led the way, he led the way gathered the officers of the city and went up to Bet Yahweh, officers of the city, his, his entire cabinet, his, the governors, whatever, he took them. I'm going and you're going with me. Where are we going? We're going to church. Huh, okay. And they brought seven bulls and seven rams, seven lambs, seven kids or young goats for sin offerings. That's where they start. We're sinners. There's nothing especially good about us. We're sinners. We have forsaken our God. And our people everywhere are acting like fools in their behavior, in their so-called worship of pagan gods and goddesses. We're sinners. In the best way we know how, we're coming to offer sin offerings for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah, Judah, that's the people. The kingdom, that's the administration. The sanctuary, that's the place that had been forsaken for so long that it's supposed to be central to the lives of Israelites. And he said to the sons of Aaron, the priests, to offer them up on the altar of Yahweh. They slaughtered the cattle. The priests received the blood. They sprinkled it upon the altar. They slaughtered the rams, sprinkled the blood upon the altar. They slaughtered the lambs and sprinkled the blood upon the altar. They brought the kids, the young goat, for sin offerings, 
before the king and the congregation. They placed their hands upon them. They were doing this in front of the people, in front of the king. And the priests slaughtered them and sprinkled their blood upon the altar to atone for all of Israel. Now think about this. Not just Judah, all of Israel. Because for all Israel, the king said to offer the burnt offerings and the sin offerings. That's what the king said. Let's get back to the basics. Let's get back to business. Let's get back to worship. Let's understand this and express it to Yahweh that we know that we are sinners. This horrible blood spilling death, that ought to be us. But because he is a loving God, he's provided for us to symbolically transfer this horrible guilt and sin to these innocent animals. We're going to offer this to Yahweh that he may know that we understand we're sinners. They place their hands upon them. Then to the altar to atone for all of Israel. Because for all Israel, the king said to offer up these offerings. Now, he stationed the Levites in the house of Yahweh. So what happens now? We're going to play some worship music. And we're going to sing. That's what he said. So this is how they did it in the time of David. They had done it until, until the, the previous king. They weren't singing anymore. They had nothing from the heart. With cymbals, with psalteries, with harps. By the commandment of David and Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. For by the hand of Yahweh was the commandment by the hand of his prophets. And the Levites stood with David's instruments and the priests with the trumpets. Hezekiah said to bring up the burnt offerings. Now, you offer a sin offering. That means that something died for you because you're a sinner. And God accepts an atonement in your place. And instead of you being killed, the offering is killed. God allowed that to be a substitute in this, in this uh, temple worship. Now understand it because the word of God said so. This was sufficient for them in the Old Testament. Understanding that by the word of God, God had accepted them into, a, into his presence for worship. Having now forgiven their sins, they come to commit themselves as worshipers. That's the burnt offering. That's a dedication of self. That's not an offering for sin. That's an offering for a cleansed worshiper. That's the, that's the burnt offering. They commenced the song of Yahweh and the trumpets commenced and by means of the instruments of David, king of Israel. You know, some, some glorious day the Bible gives us a glimpse of the assembled saints before the throne of God. And the Bible, the Bible says, uh, uh, with the assembled elders and all the others, they sang a new song. How about that? Here, they're singing the song. The song was sung. The entire congregation prostrated themselves. The song was sung. Trumpets were sounded 
Everything continued until the completion of the burnt offerings. I mean, people are getting happy. They're playing their orchestra. People are singing. The choir is striking up. And the people, one by one, and family group by family group, they're coming together and exclaiming thanksgiving to God that he has forgiven them and proclaiming that they belong to God. That's the burnt offering. I'm your servant. Nothing is, you know, when the burnt offering, they cut that thing up and they flayed it and they turned it inside out so that nothing, not, not any part of the entrails were, were hidden at all. It all was exposed. Then it was burned up and it was a sweet smelling savor to God because the worshiper is saying, I have not hidden a thing from you, Yahweh. You are my God and here I am. So they're having a wonderful time and it's beginning to build. And when they finished offering them up, the king and all those found with him kneeled and knelt and prostrated themselves. King Hezekiah and the officer ordered the Levites to praise Yahweh with the words of David. So it's Psalm time for Psalms. Asaph the seer. They sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Let me tell you, this is an interesting Hebrew phrase. I didn't highlight it, but they sang praises with gladness. Literally, it could read like this. They sang praises until they were filled with joy. Think about that. You start, a, you start singing something like Amazing Grace and you just kind of just join in, you know. But by the time you get to that part that says when we've been there 10,000 years, you're getting kind of happy. Uh, if you're a true worshiper, this is the way the people are. This thing, it kind of starts out, it, the, the, it seems to indicate that it sort of started out kind of mundane. They were doing music they knew, but they sang praises with glad. In other words, they kept doing it until they were filled with the truth of what they were singing. <laughs> God give us those songs and, and that music and those singers, right? And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Hezekiah answered and said, now you have consecrated yourselves to Yahweh. Come close and bring peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings to the house of Yahweh. So it's time to take up an offering. And the congregation brought peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings and every generous hearted uh, one burnt offerings. The number of burnt offerings that the congregation brought was 70 oxen, 100 rams, 200 lambs. All of these were burnt offerings to Yahweh. The sacred offerings were 600 large cattle, 3,000 small cattle. Only the priests were few. Now, they're having to you know, they're having to gut these things. There weren't that many priests. They couldn't flay all the burnt offerings. So their brethren, the Levites, reinforced them until the work was completed. You're a Levite. Take a knife and come here. Until the work was completed and until the priests consecrated themselves. For the Levites were more conscientious than the priests to consecrate themselves. And also there were many burnt offerings with the fats of peace offerings, 
the libations for the burnt offerings, and the service of the house of Yahweh was established. It was set in order. They hadn't done it in a long time. It's time to go back to church, if you want to call it that. Worship. And it began to fill the hearts of the people. Because Hezekiah, in the first month of the first year, set about to restore the spiritual lives of the people. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over that which God had prepared for the people. Because the, which to God had been prepared for them. Because the events happened so suddenly. <laughs> That's pretty good. I was trying to do something, but I didn't know it was going to catch on like this. And, you know, we, we all had to change our plans because we just had a big time. And he kept going. That's how Hezekiah's reign as king began. And good things will happen now that God's people are restored to God. We'll stop there and we'll have our uh, deacon prayer time.